If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 13. We're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study through this gospel account, and would love for you to have that there in front of you. If you need to use a pew Bible, there should be a black one there in front of you. Feel free to open up, or if you have a Bible of your own, I'll be reading out of the ESV, whatever version you have is fine. I'd rather you read and study the one you have. And so remember, if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. We're in the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. You're going to look for the big 13. That's going to be the chapter that we're going to be in. And we're going to look at verse 1. So just find the big 13 and the next verse that comes. And remember how the Bible works. The Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says that someone's coming again. And who is that someone? It's Jesus Christ. And so we're in the gospel accounts that are looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus. And especially as we started last week, we've kind of made a shift away from kind of the signs, the signs that Jesus performed. And now we're marching towards Passion Week and towards the cross in the gospel account. And so as you're opening up to John chapter 13, let me tell you a story. The American author Anne Lamott told a great story in her book called Traveling Mercies. And while I don't agree with Anne on everything, I did like this story. She wrote, Last night I decided it was crazy to believe in Christ. Then something truly amazing happened. A man from church showed up at our front door, smiling and waving to me and my son Sam, and I let him in. After exchanging pleasantries, he said, Margaret and I wanted to do something for you and the baby. So what I want to ask you is, what if a fairy appeared on your doorstep and said that he or she would do any favor for you at all, anything you wanted around the house if you felt too exhausted to do it by yourself and too ashamed to ask anyone else to help with. I can't even say, I said. It's too horrible, she wrote. But he finally convinced me to tell him, and I said it would be to clean the bathroom. And he ended up spending an hour scrubbing the bathtub and toilet and sink with Ajax and lots of hot water. And I sat on the couch while he worked, watching TV, feeling vaguely guilty and nursing Sam to sleep. But it made me feel sure of Christ again, of that kind of love. This, a man scrubbing a new mother's bathtub, is what Jesus means to me. Great story. Just someone coming and serving and doing the hard thing and showing Christ to her. As we look at the Gospel of John, we've talked a lot about Jesus' divinity, his power, him staring down the powerful Pharisees, his eminence, so his, him being close from our transcendence, high and lifted up eminence with us, his glory as the eternal Son of God. We've also talked a lot about Jesus' love for his disciples and how he entered into sad and hard situations, how he sat and even wept with broken, weary people, and he offered them hope and encouragement. And the amazing thing about John's gospel and our Lord, which it revolves around, is that all of these things are simultaneously true. He's transcendent and eminent. He's high and lifted up, but yet he's close. He's the divine son of God, but yet he weeps at the mouth of a tomb. We've also spent a good deal of time talking about the differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we saw a great illustration of this contrast a few Sundays ago when we looked at what was known as the triumphal entry. Instead of processing in on this mighty war horse to fulfill his pride and ambition, what did Jesus do? He rode in humbly on a little bitty donkey into a town. All of it to fulfill scripture. 
Now, in the business world, and especially we used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you've got just the downtown areas, just bank after bank after bank. And so you see a lot of just kind of your standard corporate culture played out on the streets of Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's been a lot of talk in the business world about moving away from kind of a traditional top-down CEO-type model towards more of what is referred to as a servant leader type of approach to management at the corporate level. Forbes magazine actually wrote an article a few months ago that described this model. And here's some of the things that they said that corporate leaders should be doing. Listen more. Have empathy. Heal those around you, whatever that means. Persuade without being forceful. Practice stewardship. That were some of these, the marks of a servant leader model of CEO management. In the business world, it's interesting. They're speaking as though this is a new model for leadership. But as we'll see in a moment, this model has been around for centuries. It's actually the archetype of it is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. And we can learn a lot about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what his kingdom looks like from this passage. And so see if you can pick up on a couple of those things as we read. Let's look at John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 17. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to you and we look at your life, Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be at work. Take these words and apply them to our hearts, O Lord, and help us to understand and know you more. Lord, please, if you see fit, Lord, draw us closer to you as we sit at your feet. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the big question that we're asking this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person, is this. Why should the Christian's life be marked by service? Pretty simple question. Why should the Christian's life be marked by service? We're going to see two big points this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, Christ himself is the example of a servant. And number two, Christ calls us to servanthood. 
So why should the Christian's life be marked by service? Number one, Christ is the ultimate example of that, and yet he calls us also to follow in his footsteps by being servants. Let's look at that first point. Christ is the example of a servant. This is verses 1 through 11, if you're taking notes. Now, we probably all heard or used the idiom, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall. It's a little, it's not an idiot, it's an idiom. Little, man, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Meaning... You would love to have seen or heard what was happening without being noticed. That's what means, I I wish I could have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. That if I could have tucked away and nobody had seen me, I I would have loved to have seen what was going on. Chapters 13 through 17 in John's Gospel are known as the Farewell Discourse. And so as we just read, we've begun the farewell discourse in John's gospel. It's also known as the upper room discourse. And they recount the final hours that Jesus spent with his disciples. Here's what Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary. He said, As one reads through the gospel of John, the shadow of the cross goes longer and darker until now the reader stands at the foot of the cross on the evening before the crucifixion. In just a few short hours, somewhere between 15 and 18 hours, Our Lord will be suspended between the sky and earth as the sin-bearer of mankind. Before the sun sets again, he would breathe his last tortured breath. So in many ways, what we're looking at this morning and for the next few chapters, these chapters let us be a fly on the wall. As we spend the evening with Jesus, listening to him teach, watching him serve, and hearing him pray, we'll spend several weeks studying what took place in only a few hours. Isn't that typical preacher stuff? You take way too long to say what should only take this long to say. That was a joke, by the way. We're going to spend a few, few weeks looking at, this, at these chapters. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that we find ourselves around the Passover meal. And there's some debate among scholars as to the precise timing of this meal when compared with the synoptic gospels. So the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's a little different in the way it's laid out. And so there's a little bit of debate, as you can imagine anything, even in the scriptures, like you could say, and Jesus looked at the sky and it was blue. And there would be scholarly debate in articles and papers written about what does blue actually mean. So what we look at this, the main thrust of the timing comes when John wrote, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. We're reminded that the cross is looming ever closer. Notice how John describes Jesus' love for his disciples. Did you pick up on this? It says he loved them to the end. That's the title of our sermon. He loved them to the end. In the Greek, it's aistelos hegapesenautus. And the way that that's written actually in the Greek is... To the end, he loved them. To the very end, he loved them. Packed with meaning. This could mean Jesus loved them to the uttermost extent or up to the point of the end of his earthly life. And the thing about it is both of those are true. And both of those show us the heart of Christ. That he loved them to the uttermost. But he also loved them to the very end of his earthly ministry. Right up until the point where he breathed his laugh. Both of those things are true. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that he had been given all power and authority by the Father and that he would shortly be returning to his Father. Now, my friend Mark Skyling, he's now a church planter out in Illinois, he made a great point, and I want to give him credit for it because it was really good. Here's what he said. He said, imagine you have been given the lamp in the story of Aladdin. What would you choose to do with that power? How would you use it? What would your next thing be? We've all wondered this about ourselves, hadn't we? We all said, I wonder if I had gotten the Aladdin's lamp, what would I wish for? 
And we've all thought, well, my first wish would be to wish for infinite wishes. Let me just admit it. You've all, you've all thought that. The first thing I would wish for is infinite wishes. And you think about what's going on here. Knowing that Jesus had been given all authority, what did he decide to do? What did he decide to do? Look at verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Remember, we are getting a picture of the divine Son of God, full of power, full of, full of authority, taking the form of a servant and washing the feet of sinners with his own bare hands. Now, something you need to know about in the ancient Near East, right? We set these texts in their historical context, and then we draw from the Scripture. It's called exegesis. We don't read with our 21st century eyes into the text. We set them in their historical context, and we draw meaning from the text. We exegete. So what's going on here? When you think about in the ancient Near East, this was a task reserved from, for slaves. But even some slaves were spared from this task. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. Within Israel, if a Jewish person had a Jewish slave, the slave owner was not permitted to require that slave to wash his feet. Only a Gentile slave could be required to perform such a menial task. And so we're seeing what Jesus is doing here in the midst of Jerusalem, doing what uh, even Gentiles, they could be compelled to do. This is like the lowest of the low menial tasks that Jesus himself is doing. And this would have been shocking Hence Peter's reaction. Do you see what Peter does? But the fact that Jesus undertook this lowly task is packed with significance for us today. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson does a masterful job of comparing John's account with Paul's later description of Jesus in Philippians 2, 6-9. It says that though he was in the form of a servant, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He lays Paul's account and he lays John's account next to each other and shows how the two line up. It's a masterful treatment. Here's what Ferguson said. I mean, think about it. you're a fly on the wall watching what's going on. Put yourself in that room as best you can. Here's what Ferguson says. He says, the only sound to break the silence is water being poured into the basin. Now Jesus begins to wash the feet of disciples who have been too self-invested to, to wash each other's feet. Here in dramatic form, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, gives us a picture of the wonder of His incarnation and His humility. Here's what Sproul said about this picture. He said, it was not His deity, but His dignity that Jesus laid aside, taking the form of a servant. Let me say it again. It was not His deity that He laid aside. It was His dignity that he laid aside willingly in all humility to love and care for his disciples. Look at verses 6 and 7. As Jesus makes his way around the room, he comes to Peter and he meets resistance. And aren't we oftentimes just like Peter? I know I am. We don't think that we need Jesus to do anything for us. We kind of pride ourselves on being self-sufficient. Or we often fool ourselves into thinking, oh, I'm not that bad. You might need to wash that person's feet, but not mine. Mine really aren't that dirty. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, you probably need to go tend to that person first. Or we pride ourselves on, I don't need you to do anything for me, Jesus. I'm fine over here by myself. I'm a pretty good person. I don't need to be washed. But what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us what he came to do. And look at how Jesus responds to this objection. Look in verse 8. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is talking about what he came to do. To lay down his life as the true Passover lamb. Remember, we're around the Passover feast. So that his people could be sprinkled clean by his blood. Jesus is showing Peter and us that we need to be made clean because we all have dirty hearts. And the blood of Christ is the only remedy for that. We need to be washed clean in the blood of Christ. Notice Jesus Jesus doesn't tell Peter, if you don't wash yourself at first, you have no share with me. That's not the gospel. It's moralism. You save yourself by your own efforts, and then Jesus then accepts your efforts. That's not what he's telling Peter to do. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, you need to go wash yourself and then come and show me that you've done it. That's not what's going on here. We don't like the thought of Jesus having to wash us because sin makes us hardwired for earning. We don't like to just accept it. We want to earn it. We want to have something that we can point to to say, look, I did something in this whole equation. That's not what's going on here. You see, Jesus laying down his life and serving. Look at what Jesus says. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is the gospel. You have to admit that you're dirty and that you can't clean yourself. But Jesus can. Remember, we said the church and the mob are very unique in one particular way. You have to admit you're bad to get in. One of the membership vows that you take to join this church is, do you admit that you're a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His wrath, and without Christ, or under that wrath? You have to say, yes, I believe that about myself. It's so countercultural. We have to publicly admit, yes, I need Jesus. Yeah, I, I can't save myself. But I rest in the one who can. His name's Jesus. That's the second question when you join. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior of sinners? And do you rely and rest upon Him alone? And you say, yes, I do. That's how the gospel works. It's amazing when we think about it. You don't bring the feet you've cleaned yourself to Jesus and then ask Him to accept them. Jesus brings the basin to you. You receive Him by faith. You trust in His work. All that He has done for you. That's the gospel. It's amazing when you think about it. Look at verse 9. True to form, we have old, impulsive Peter. He responds, well then, don't just stop with my feet. Wash all of me. My head, everything. Do it all, Lord. And notice this is also another way we deal with the thought of Jesus having to wash us. Instead of earning it beforehand, we instinctively feel like we need to add to it on the back end. We can't believe that what Jesus did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago was sufficient to fully accomplish our cleansing. There's got to be something else we got to do. It can't just be that simple. What else do I need to do? How do I add this? How do I add to the equation? It's why many of you have a hard time resting in the assurance of Christ's love. You feel like you need to earn something more, you feel like you need to prove yourself somehow. Or constantly remind Jesus of how truly committed you are. It can't just be that simple. There has to be something else that I need to do on the back end. I need to prove to you that I've been a good little boy or a good little girl. I need to prove to you that I've come to church every time the doors are open. Or I need to prove to you that I've done all this stuff. It can't just be that simple in resting in Christ and what He's done. And here's a reminder of the God. Either it's finished or it's not. If it's finished, it's finished. And what that means is you need to get off the treadmill of works. Get off the treadmill of trying to prove yourself. It's no wonder that you're so tired at the heart level. 
You're constantly trying to prove yourself. You're constantly trying to say, Hey, Lord, is this good enough? Is this good enough for you to love me? Look at all these things that I've done. Is this good enough, Jesus? No wonder you can rest. Jesus doesn't say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and do a bunch of extra stuff. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest at the heart level. Some of us have absolutely no idea what that feels like because we are so hardwired for earning that we think that Jesus works like this. Jesus is not a vending machine. You don't come and put your work and your effort and all of your stuff that you've done, you don't put those like coins in the slot and push the button and the prize pops out. Jesus comes to you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and he made you alive. He moves towards you in your brokenness and your dirtiness and he cleans you up. Don't you see the beauty of the gospel? What's going on here? And we're so quick to forget it. Is this thing on? You think about what's going on here in the text. Don't you feel that in your heart that you think there's got to be something else I need to do? There's got to be something. It's why we can't just accept a gift in the South, can we? No, it creates a social contract. You bring me over food... I need to wash your dish out and put some new food in it and bring it to you. You give me a gift, I instinctively feel like I need to respond in kind. God does not work that way. Praise be. Because you can't bring a good enough gift. Your casserole will never be good enough to earn God's love and favor. He says, I'm going to give you this by grace. That's it. And we go, there's got to be something else. There's not. That's why the gospel's good news. Why do we obey? Are we called to obey in the Scripture? Shake your head, yes. We are called to obey in the Scripture. Yes, we are. I believe in sanctification. But the motivation for our obedience, this is where the gospel takes how we normally are hardwired and flipped it on its head. You may have never ever heard this before. We obey not so that God will love us. We obey because God already loves us and has paid for our sin debt through His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't obey and go, hey, Lord, is this good enough? We recognize, I could never bring you anything that's good enough. That's why I need Jesus. And that's why at the end of it all, we go and we stand before the Lord. We don't say, look, Lord, look at all this cool stuff I did. We say, I'm with him. And Jesus vouches for us. He says, they're mine. And we get on on his righteousness. And we're so hidden in him. That when the father looks at us, he sees his son. Have you ever thought about that? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You may have noticed I'm off my notes. <laughs> it's so good. We just can't believe that what Jesus did on the cross for us was fully sufficient. And I've got good news for you. It was. Notice, Jesus didn't ask anyone in that room to go prove themselves before he washed them. They just needed to accept it. To trust his promise of cleansing. This justification by faith. What's the water all about? The water points to the cross. We just did that a second ago. The water points to the cross. It always is about the cross. It's not, oh, you made the right profession. Now I can wash. Notice he just washes his feet. Not the whole thing. Just saying. Just a little bit. He says, guess what? That's not how this works. I love you. I'm going to wash you. Verse 10, Jesus tells Peter and the rest of the room that what he's done and will do for them is fully sufficient. Nothing else needs to be added. There's nothing we can add to the cross. 
Remember Christ found you in the depths of your sin and uncleanliness, and He washed you in His own shed blood so that you could be declared clean. He did it. You did it. Christ, the true servant, emptied Himself of all but love to bleed for you so that you could be brought into His family. And the sad part when you think, remember, we're a fly on the wall. The sad part about this scene as it unfolds is the presence of Judas, isn't it? Contrasted with the self-sacrificing Jesus, we have self-serving Judas. And Jesus proceeds with the full awareness of Judas's upcoming portrayal. All of this was part of the sovereign plan of God so that His glory would be made manifest. Romans 9, 22-24. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As you sit here and stare at Jesus, see the long-suffering of our Lord, and see Him willing to endure betrayal and mocking and slander and death itself, while he works to redeem his beloved sheep. See the example he lays before us in his own flesh and blood. He calls us to endure betraying and mocking and slander for the sake of his name. As we lay down our lives in service to others, even if they don't love us back. We have every expectation to believe that Jesus washed Judas' feet that night. Knowing full well he was going to betray him. And it was all part of the sovereignty of God. See, we have no idea what it's like. Could you imagine? I know 15 hours from now I'm going to die a brutal death on the cross and I'm still going to serve you. I have, every, I have every opportunity to pull rank on you, but I'm not. I'm going to serve you to the end because I love you. You see, the gospel of grace isn't going to make sense to you until you see yourself as Judas in the scene. It's not going to make sense. You, me, we were the ones who were his enemies, and he still washed us. It's by grace you've been saved. You who were once my enemies are now my friends. The gospel's never going to make sense until you hear the bad news first. But once you see the bad news, then it becomes good news, isn't it? Jesus didn't die to make good people better. Jesus died to make dead people live. It's amazing. And so now what? Christ is the ultimate example of a servant. So what? That's our second point. Quickly, Christ calls us to servanthood, verses 12 to 17. Think about the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God could not lie in starker contrast in this moment. One is marked by the raw application of power and control. The other is marked by self-sacrifice and humility. One is marked by earning and merit. The other is marked by grace. One is marked by making a name for yourself. The other is marked by making much of someone else's name. Don't you see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world laid in stark contrast right here? As Kent Hughes said, Jesus calls us to be quote-unquote people of the towel. That's what we're called. Verse 12, after Jesus washes their feet, he asks a very important question. Do you understand all that I have done for you? In the parallel account in Luke 22, a dispute arose between the disciples about who was the greatest. And think about this, with, with the cross only hours away, the disciples were still arguing about matters of pride and social status. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lord, am I better than him or her? You think about the disciples wrestling with this. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. 
Usually when there was no servant present to wash the guests' feet, the first one or two to arrive would perform the ceremony for the rest of the guests. But here the first arrivals were not in the mood. Perhaps who's the greatest controversy had actually begun as they journeyed there. They were willing to fight for the throne, but no one wanted the towel. Jesus' act was a powerful lesson in servanthood, and they were missing the point. So then what's the point? Verse 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do this just as I have done to you. In verse 13, they called Jesus teacher and Lord. So that means that he had a special claim over them. And he used what, now Jesus is using what is called an a fortiori argument in legal speak. It said, if it's true for the greater, me, how much more so for the lesser you? If I've got to do it, you've got to do it. That's the simple non-legalese version of that. Now think, the humility of Christ is a pattern for all who call Him Lord. Instead of aspiring to control and dominate, they must be eager to serve sacrificially. But the problem comes when we think we're above it. It's why many don't seek out ways to serve in the church. It's why many don't seek out ways to serve in their community. It's why many don't seek out, seek out ways to serve those who may inconvenience them or make them uncomfortable. It's why many don't seek to serve their families. We think, I'm too busy, or I'm too important, or I'm sure someone else will do it instead of me. We don't want to be the people of the towel, do we? We want to be served, not to serve. That is the heart of sin in our hearts. It makes us love ourselves more than those around us. Christians never stop being people of the towel because we're called to serve the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. We're called to give all that we have while we're alive because Christ did the very same thing. He loved them to the end. We play hard until the final whistle, don't we? We give all that we have. We've got an eternity to rest in Christ. And while we're here on this earth, we serve and we serve and we serve and we serve and we serve serve again. And we look for ways to serve. We never get to the point where we say, I've done my time and I'm out. That's not the way we roll as Christians. Because look at the example of Christ. Did he say when he had every moment to say, hey, I'm about to die in a few hours. I'm not going to do this to you. No. He served until the very end. And that's what we're called to do. We look for ways to serve in the world around us. When we feel this pride welling up in our hearts, we need to remember what Jesus said in verse 16. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You see, Jesus wasn't too proud to stoop low to rescue us. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus didn't say, oh, you're not worth it. I'm not going to leave my Father's throne to come to you. Did y'all not read the words of that hymn that we sang? The Savior left his Father's throne. He came and he dwelt among us to love and to rescue and to redeem us. He didn't say, you're not worth it. He said, you are worth it. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to rescue and redeem you. I'm going to love you to the end. It's hope. Mark 10, 43 to 45, But it shall not be so among you. This is the words of Jesus. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so what? A little bit left. Hang with me. So what? How do we take what we've learned, that Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant, and Christ calls us to servanthood until the very end? So what? We're called to look for ways to serve in the church. You want a practical way? There's nine sheets of paper in the main hallway right now for you to go sign up for a team. We need your help. Serve until the end. 
Just go put your name on a couple of sheets of paper out there. You want to know a great place to start? There you go. We need your name on them. Yes, you. Yes, you. Even you. We need your help so that we can work together as a church for the glory of Christ in our community. We look for ways to serve in our community. Go coach a team. Go volunteer. Go help in the school. Look for ways to serve those around you. Go check in on your neighbors. Think about your own friend group. Is it closed or is it open? Do you have room in your friend groups to go and bring another person in? I hope so. We always, as Christians, are called to go and gather and connect people. That's what we do. Do you introduce new people to your friends around you so that you can include them in your community? Hey, so-and-so, meet so-and-so. This is my friend. Do you do that? Or is your friend group already closed? If it's closed and you don't have room for any more, you need to repent. Open that thing up. What if Jesus did that to you? It's very practical. Go love and serve this community. Go love and serve your neighbors. Speak words of encouragement instead of passive-aggressive comments because you didn't get your way. Be kind to your coworkers. Be quick to show grace and forgiveness. Be quick to take the servant approach. How can I love you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? I'll do the hard thing. I'll do it first. Let me go first. Why? Why do we do all of this stuff? Because Jesus calls us to serve as he did, and that's reason enough. The king says, go serve. And we say, yes, Lord. That's reason enough. Even if they don't love us back, we still do it. Not so that he will love us, but because he already does. We love, why? Because he first loved us. It's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now did you notice the little promise in verse 17? This is it. Did you notice the little promise in verse 17? Let's read that as we close. Look at what he said in verse 17. This last little promise. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed, there is that word that's makarios. It's this deep-seated contentment. Blessed, content, fulfilled, whole are you if you do these things, is what he's talking about. Same word used in the Sermon on the Mount, beatitudes. May what we believe, our orthodoxy, and how we live, our orthopraxy, be consistent. For the glory of God alone. What do we want to pray and ask the Lord for help with in our community? May we be known in this community. May Grace Prez be known as people of the towel. May we be known as a church of the towel. We love and serve. We go towards and serve. We don't wait for people to come to us and serve. We go to them because of what Christ has done. And may we be known as servant-hearted followers of Christ who have tasted His grace, tasted His mercy, and said, Lord, put me to work. Put me in, coach. It's a wonderful thing to pray. That's my prayer. Lord, help me to be a pastor of the towel. Help me to love and serve this flock whom you've called me until the very end. Help me, Lord. Please. That's our prayer. It's a good prayer. Resting and trusting in the grace of Christ and all that He has done. He's that good. You don't have to add to it. Rest in His grace and His mercy and go love and serve your neighbor for the glory of God. That's it. Amen? All right, let's pray.
Lord, thank you. We think about your mercy and your kindness to us, O Lord, and how you move towards us. Lord, you didn't wait for us to go clean ourselves up and to bring a resume to you or bring a carefully typed out profession to you. Lord, you didn't wait for that. You brought the basin to us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you moved towards us in love and you washed us and you gave us a new heart. It's by grace we've been saved, not by our efforts, not by our merits. It's by grace and grace alone. And Lord, we're thankful for all that you've done. We're thankful that it's finished. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we think that we need to add to what you have done. We say it's finished, but no, it's just finished. Lord, give us a heart to love and serve those around us. Give us a new pair of eyes to which to see our community, our neighborhood, to see our own church. And help us, Lord, as you did, to love and serve each other until the very end. Lord, please, may we be known as people of the towel, those who are quick to serve, those who are quick to love and to reach out to those around us, those who do not have closed friend groups but have wonderfully open friend groups, always looking to bring in and add. Lord, we're thankful that while we were once your enemies, you've made us your friends. You brought us into your family. You've adopted us. And now we have confidence to cry, Abba, Father. And so, Father, please hear our prayers and please help us. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.